So put our Bibles to Ezekiel 34, 35, and 36 this evening. And as we get into our study, just a quick way of review. We're getting into the portion. I'll tell the story when we get to chapter 36 of the significance of this particular chapter. Our text on Sunday was verses 11 through 24 of chapter 34. But we left off the first part of the chapter and the last part of the chapter. So as we look at Ezekiel as a whole, if you you go from chapter 1, verse 22, again, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. Ezekiel is in Babylon. It's back and forth. He's trying to persuade the people to not fight against the fact that they're going to be taken into captivity for 70 years. So that was their message. Eventually, Jerusalem does fall. And after Jerusalem falls and the temple is destroyed, we have chapters 25 to 32. This would be the second division of the book of Ezekiel. And now we have King Nebuchadnezzar judging the surrounding nations of um, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Tyre, Sidon, Egypt, Philistia. All these are mentioned in um, chapters 25 through 32. Now from 33 to 39, 38 and 39 are unique because it is yet future, it has not yet happened. Some of what we're going to read here in chapter 34 is future for the millennium, but verse 17 uh, clearly is a scripture that happens right after the tribulation. So 33 to 39 is basically returning to the land. Now, this happened twice in Israel's history. It happened after the 70 years. That's what the book of Daniel is about and the book of Nehemiah. And um, then it happened again when Rome came against uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD, and they've been out of the land um, and not a nation until uh, May of 1948. So they've been out of the land twice, Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 11. He says he will regather them again a second time. And so what we're going to have in view here tonight is primarily the second time, but it's also being given to them because everything up to this point has really been really a downer. I don't know any other way to say it. There was no good news. There was no hope. They deserved everything that they were getting, and they were going to be taken into judgment and captivity. But they now are having the hope that they are going to come back. And they did come back. Not very many, about 50,000. Some people got used to living in Babylon and liked it so much that they decided to stay. And it it took Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. Uh, These were the ones that uh, came back, got the people motivated to once again restore the land. Then the last part of the book of Ezekiel is chapters 40 through 48. And when we get to those chapters, it deals with all of of what's going to take place during the 1,000-year millennial reign. It's very detailed. It has to do with um, how the land is going to be divided. Very detailed instructions for the temple, uh, the measurements, how it's to be built. Very, very detailed. So that's basically a breakdown. Where we find ourselves tonight in chapter 34 is the Lord is going to now deal with these false prophets that have been telling the people wrongly 
that they would not go into captivity, that they would not go into judgment. Now the Lord says he's going to deal with them. So let's pick it up. And this deals with the first 10 verses, and we'll read all 10, and I'll come back and comment on it. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I'll prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick for, or were bound up or broken, nor brought back the, that was driven away, nor sought what uh, was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field, and they were scattered. My sheep wandering through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, Nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed them and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. And I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may be no longer food for them. We call them hirelings um, because the only concern <clears throat> that the false prophet had here was for self. And um, go back to verse two. Woe to you, should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Now, this is what one's in a Bible study and teaching through the Bible is all about. I see way too many Uh, motivational speakers because that's what they are they'll get up and read one verse and then they just ramble on and um, some of them are very very entertaining Um, but the last thing that they're doing is feeding the flock when the Lord was had his last talk with Simon Peter in John chapter 21 um, the, the Lord asked him three times Peter do you love me And every time Peter said yes, he says, well then, if you love me, then I want you to feed the sheep. I want you to tend the sheep, feed the lambs, and then feed the sheep, if you love the Lord. So this this is a two-way street. Now, um, when I got saved, I realized that um, this was sort of an all-or-nothing proposition. I mean, if this is true, and uh, it was modeled so well by Chuck, And I like to say we caught just as much as we were taught, just by observation. But here's a guy, he just always amazed me, but he uh, was steadfast. He says, I'll never forget him saying, I'm dedicating my life to teach the word of God. And I thought that was, uh, yeah, that was probably the best thing I could ever hear anybody say, that he's going to dedicate his life to teach the word of God. 
So Paul says in the same, and we're to preach the word, um, but usually when I travel and um, maybe speaking or explaining Calvary Chapel and our philosophy, I tell them it's not so much about preaching because the people that um, will come to a Wednesday night Bible study, or the majority on a Sunday morning, they're already saved. My job is to feed the sheep. You're the sheep and I'm the shepherd, at least of Calvary Chapel of Appleton. Every church should have a shepherd and his primary, according to Ephesians, there are different gifts that are given and one of them is pastor-teacher. They should go together. It shouldn't just be a pastor. That pastor better have the gift of teaching, otherwise he shouldn't be in the pulpit. Good place for an amen. You gotta have both. But what it's turned into to um, spend more uh, in these times getting away from that because to do so, a lot of people um, would get bogged down by going through the book of Ezekiel. But when you go through it, we don't get bogged down at all. We, we see pieces being fit together that we really, you won't have a comprehension of the New Testament unless you're getting a verse by verse from the Old Testament. So they were accused, verse two, you have not, uh, you have not fed the flock. And um, this is the most important thing that I can say to the church today at large, is the importance of feeding the flock. And Jesus said, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from me. Now, I'm dedicated to do that. But it's, like I said, it's a two-way street. Uh, we have to be examples to our families that, um, you know, Wednesday night Bible study is a priority in our lives. Our kids are watching. And um, people at work say, so what did you do last night? Well, Wednesday night Bible study is what we do, part of our, part of our custom. And um, then what we do is we take that, well, I'll take a portion like I did this last week, and and um, we gave a study on a true shepherd and the narrow way versus all the other tares that are out there, and that's my job. My job is to expose false doctrine. So we talked about reincarnation in Hinduism, and we talked about Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses and the different tares that are out there representing the religions of the world. And um, if... A, if a pastor, um, the two names that I dropped with, when we got into dual covenantism, it gives, gives me an opportunity to get sidetracked and I can say, okay, we have a covenant here. What about Israel? Are they special? Just because they're Jews or because they're Jews, will they automatically be accepted? Well, it's a, it's a doctrine. It's called um, a dual covenant theology. And I dropped two names. I, I named John Hagee and Pat Robertson. But how are you going to know who to look out for unless I tell you who they are? Answer, you can't. And um, so this is a part of, um, like I said on Sunday, 26 of the 27 books of the New Testament are warning against false doctrine and false teachers. And if 26 out of 27 of them are warning them, then we should be doing the same today. Now, it's not popular, doesn't feel good. 
And um, a lot of people saying, well, you're being judgmental. Well, my Bible says that the spiritual man discerns all things. They take Matthew 7, 7 out of context that um, uh, we're not supposed to judge. Well, that's crazy. How can you you discern a false uh, doctrine unless you're making a discerning judgment? You can't. What that is really referring to is the motive of your heart and why you do what you do. I'm not to judge that because I don't know what's in your heart. Only the Lord knows what's in your heart. So those things that that you do and the motive for you doing, I, I don't know, and it's not my job to judge. So if my job is to feed the flock, Ephesians 4 says the pastor teacher, that's a gift that you should have as a pastor if you're pastoring, but then it says it's for the equipping of the saints for ministry. You see, you get fed here, and what you take, you take from here so that you can do the work of ministry. There's this false concept in Christianity today that, that uh, the pastor should be the one doing the evangelizing. No, the pastor should be the one feeding the flock so that the flock could do the work of ministry. And they say, well, that's Franklin Graham's job. He's the evangelist. No, you are um, um, believers and, and um, your job is to be equipped through the teaching of the word so that you can do the work of ministry. We all have a ministry. We all have gifts. Everybody that is born again has been given a gift and you are to um, exercise it. All right, let's move on to um, this first 10 verses here. There were false prophets in Ezekiel's day. There are false prophets today. Jesus said in Matthew 24, one of the main signs of the last days is many false Christs and many false prophets will arise. He says it four times when asked about what will be the sign in the last days. And he says, look out for the false prophets and the false teachers because there's going to be a lot of them. And a lot of them will be able to do um, supernatural and have supernatural gifts. Now, 11 to 24 was our text on Sunday, but I want to read it again and I want to get sidetracked in verse 17 here. Now, the true shepherd. <clears throat> for thus says the Lord God, indeed, myself will search for my sheep and I'll seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from the place where they are scattered on a cloudy and a dark day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel in the valleys and the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture. Um, fold that, um, their fold shall be in the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down on good fields and feed in rich pastures in the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, uh, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them all in judgment. And what we have in view here is part of now the millennial reign where the Lord himself, we're told he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And so we have what what I believe here is um, the way that those in captivity, if 
they, they could see it as hope of coming back, but in context here, it's really talking about the millennial reign. Um, now here's one of those verses. Remember I said we can have a time gap and we can go backwards and forwards in one verse? Well, here's one of the places that this happens. Verse 17 says, And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will judge between sheep and sheep and between rams and rams. Now, this verse, uh, um, underneath it, I have a cross-reference. Maybe your, your Bible does too. It says Matthew 25, verse 32. I want you to turn to Matthew 25, verse 32. And even though what we've just read, and we're going to come back and read about the millennium after this verse, this verse right here that was in Ezekiel 34 is really a prophecy. And its fulfillment, Jesus talks about, we'll pick it up in verse 31 of Matthew 25, says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd uh, divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and took you in. Now remember, these are all the things that the false prophets did not do. Now here is um, the Lord saying to those that were saved, uh, they did clothe the naked and cared for the poor. Said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed you and thirsty and you gave no drink? When did we see you a stranger and uh, take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and Come to you. And the king answered and says to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren did it to me. Now, this um, scripture could be used to talk about Christians and us doing exactly what we just read here. And often it's preached that way. But if we're keeping it in context, it's immediately after the Lord comes back. What's the first order of business that the Lord does after the end of the tribulation when he returns at the Battle of Armageddon? Well, Daniel chapter 12 tells us <clears throat> that the, after people see the abomination of desolation, there's going to be 1,290 days. And then what? Well, then the Lord comes back. You can tell people I know the day to the day, April 632 AD, when Jesus would come the first time. And I can even tell you the time when he's going to come back the second time. But the only way that you would know is that you would have to be living during the tribulation period, and you would actually see the event called the abomination of desolation that Jesus affirmed in Matthew chapter 24. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation... He says, then run, because it'll be the worst time in, um, 
on planet Earth, and unless he returns, and that's where he returns here, no flesh would be saved. So in context, the least of these, my brethren, is talking about the Jewish people. Not all the people at large, but Judaism. How do you treat the Jewish people? It goes back to Genesis 12. I'm gonna bless those who bless my people, but I'm gonna curse those who curse them. And then in verse, um, oh, the blessing, what he does for this period of time, then Daniel 12 says this, blessed is he who comes to the, I think it's 1,300, and let me just look real quick, Daniel 10, 11, 12. Um, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So you have a 45-day period of time from when he returns until this group of people that are called blessed. Blessed is he who makes it into that. Well, evidently, what we have here is the judgment of the nations taking 45 days. And after that period of time that there will be those who enter into the kingdom, they're blessed. That's where he separates the sheep from the goats. But, picking it up in verse 40, and the king will answer in uh, verse 41, but then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why hell was created, and it was created for the devil and his, his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And then they will answer him and saying, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he'll answer and say, again, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into, notice the word, everlasting punishment. Um, there are people out there that uh, um, it's called annihilation. Um, oh, no, I'm not going to have a problem with the word. <laughs> annihilation. Annihilation. They get annihilated forever. <laughs> and basically that means that there's just a period of time and it's not forever. It's not an everlasting punishment. That they'll only be punished for a certain period of time and then it's over. Well, that's why last Sunday was so important because we spent quite a bit of time talking about the reality of different names of hell, Sheol, Hades, the lake of fire being different from hell. Hell will be em- emptied into the lake of fire. And um, not enough Bible studies, I think, on, on hell. But here is one right here, everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. I, I told the people that were gathered together here for the funeral, and I, I told them the most important decision that you're ever gonna make in your life is uh, it's, it's not a matter of if you have eternal life. I said every person sitting in this room today has eternal life. The angelic realm, they're eternal creatures. They have eternal life. I have eternal life, that's, that's not the question. The question is, where am I gonna spend my eternity? Now the Bible says that there's only one way. It's very, very narrow. Jesus said that uh, I am the resurrection and the life and he who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
And then he looks at Martha and he says, do you believe this? So there's the most important question that you'll ever have to address in your life. What do you believe? And I told the people that were here, I said, either Jesus was telling the truth or he's uh, the biggest lunatic who ever walked this planet. And there's no in between. The Lord doesn't give you any wiggle room. Yeah, but, no, but, no. It's either, um, as he said, you have to repent or you'll perish. And here he's laying out what happens. What I just read to you, let's go back and fill in. This is why, again, it's important to teach the whole word of God. Because here, in this 1 verse 17, what we've been reading from 11 through 16 is clearly events happening during the millennial reign. But verse 17, the millennial reign hasn't started yet. There's this period of time of judgment where he's gonna separate those sheep from the goats and uh, the ones who aren't gonna make it are the ones who worshiped the Antichrist, took his mark. And now, verse 18, um, we're gonna have detail of who is going to be reigning on planet Earth with the Lord. It's, it is too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture and to have drunk the clear waters that you must follow the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet and they drink what they have uh, followed with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean Sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them. Now we're talking back again now, future tense, the millennial reign. And he will feed them and be their shepherd my servant David. Verse 24, and I the Lord will be their God, my servant David, a prince among them. I the Lord have spoken it. So what does this tell us? Well, I quoted McGee on Sunday when he said that he believes that um, um, even with the new heaven and new earth, that um, David is going to be the one who reigns on planet Earth, while the bride of Christ is in the New Jerusalem, which is different than Earth. The the dimensions are all laid out in Revelation 21 and 22. And that's what Jesus was talking about in John 14. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. Well, what we have in the middle of the New Jerusalem is the throne, and the Father and the Son. And uh, so, you know, the, the scriptures tell us very little about our activities, except hints here and there. I quoted one of the promises to the Church of Thyatira on Sunday, that you will rule over the nations. Well, I take that literally. So your job, if you're faithful in little things now, the Lord says, well, if you're faithful now in little things, I'm gonna give you more responsibility in the millennial kingdom. But that just lasts for a 1,000 years. And after that, then we go into eternity and even less information 
is given to us about that. All right, let's finish up the chapter 25 to 31. It says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and I will cause wild beasts to cease from their lands, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the wood. I will make them in the places all around my hill of blessing. I will cause showers to come down in their season, and they shall be showers of blessings. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth will yield her increase. And they shall be safe in the land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yokes and delivered them from the hands of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one will make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renew, and they will no longer be consumed with hunger, uh, in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles any more. And thus they will know that I am the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. So if we would sum up this chapter, first ten verses. Um, judgment on the uh, false shepherds. What they didn't do was feed, teach, um, teach the word of God. And the second part of the chapter gives us information about the coming kingdom. But here is where David is clearly called out. Um, he was known. And he he was known. He had the reputation of having um, a, a man after God's own heart. He wanted just to be with the Lord. He had his faults, um, but to his credit, he was, when he had the adulterous affair with Bathsheba, um, he confessed it, but not after the Lord dealing with him for a long period of time. And uh, the murder of Uriah the Hittite, that was a sin on his part. Um, but the Lord, the penalty for that was, you know, in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And um, <clears throat> the prophet told him, don't worry about it, David. The Lord has put away your sin because of your repentance. So he will be the one. <laughs> Imagine seeing David. Uh, that's mind-boggling to me. Okay, I can get sidetracked on that. Chapter 35 is the judgment of Edom. And we're thinking, let's hold on for a second. Didn't Edom already get judged? Yes, they did. Uh, That's back in chapters 25 to 32. Edom, Moab, Adam, uh, uh, Ammon, uh, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, and Egypt. Well, Edom was amongst them. Chapters 35 and 36 will deal with the future restoration of Israel there are two things which must happen before the people can be restored to the land in peace. Edom must be judged, and Israel's past sins must be judged and forgiven. The judgment predicted here was fulfilled upon Adam, Edom, back in chapters um, 25 to 32. But it's also prophetic of the judgment which is in store for the enemies of Israel which are yet still future. 
Now we'll be talking about them when we get to chapter 38 because it names all of them, starting with Russia, going to Persia, and just list those nations that are gonna come against what we call the Ezekiel 38 war. So Edom is sort of a, a type because it's already been judged, but now the Lord is saying, I'm gonna judge those nations that come against um, Israel in the last days. And I'm serious when I say this could happen this year. No problem. Turkey's finally been the one that's lined up in a, in a place where it's now possible all the nations are all lined up for this to actually be uh, fulfilled. <clears throat> um, God gives the reason for the judgment of Edom. Now remember, who, who is Edom? Edom is the people that were descendants from Esau, that was Jacob's brother. Uh, Esau was uh, Jacob's bitterest uh, enemy, and the people of Eden probably hurt the people of Israel more than any other enemy they had. Edom represents the enemies of God in this world today, that enemy who is going to rise up against God in the latter days under the Antichrist. So as we read this, this chapter 35 is only 15 verses long, and let's dive into that. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I want you to set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you most desolate. I will lay your cities waste and you, will, you shall be desolate and then you'll know that I am the Lord. Because you have had an ancient heritage, I got a great big piece of ink right over that word, and I don't know what that says, but have shed the blood of the the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will prepare for you for blood, and blood shall be Pursue you, since you have not hated blood, therefore blood shall pursue you. And thus I will make Mount Seir most desolate. I will cut off from it the one who leaves the one and who returns. And I will fill its mountains with the slain and your hills and your valleys. And all your ravines and those who are slain shall fall by the sword. I will make you perpetually desolate and your cities will be uninhabited and then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess them although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have heard of your blasphemies, which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying they are desolate, they are given to us to consume. And thus with your mouth you have boasted against me and multiplied your words against me, and I've heard them. And thus says the Lord God, the, the whole earth will rejoice 
when I make you desolate. As you rejoice because the inhabitants of the house of Israel was desolate. In other words, when Jerusalem fell, they were actually rejoicing over it. So I will make, so I will do to you, and you will be desolate, O Mount Seir, as well as all who are in Edom, all of it, and then you will know I am the Lord. I believe this is setting, setting the stage when the Lord comes and literally, for the first time since he did the miracles openly in Egypt that everybody could see. <clears throat> and um, not since the Lord was here um, is the Lord going to make his hand known as much so as when we get to Ezekiel chapter 38. It gets very specific. The very first couple of verses of Ezekiel 39, he says that he's going to slay them. He's going to personally be seen doing it. And it tells us that five-sixths of them are going to fall in the mountains of Israel and only one-sixth is going to remain and they're going to go back to Russia. And then without giving too much of chapter 39 away, it says, and then I'm going to send fire on Magog up in Russia. And so this is a battle where, where he's talking about Edom here, Edom is all those as a reference, a spiritual reference to those who are going to fight and come against the Lord. And this, again, is future. But this is as current as um, stuff you're watching on the news right now with what's taking place um, in Israel. Now, that brings us to chapter... 36, chapter 36 is a very special um, chapter for me. Let's read the first 12 verses and I'll tell you why. Son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said to you, aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slanders by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes and the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder it in open country. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and say to the hills and the rivers and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken to my jealousy and my fury because you have borne the shame of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have lifted my hand with an oath 
that surely the nations that are all around, you shall bear your own shame. So judgment is coming upon them. Now verse eight through 12 um, is uh, yet prophetic. And I'll read verses eight through 12 and, and then come back and comment on it. Now he says, but you, O mountains of Israel, you're going to shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed I am with you, I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you. All the house of Israel, all of it, all the cities will be inhabited, and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at the beginning, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel, they shall take possession of you, and you shall be their inheritance, no more shall you bereave them of their children. All right, let's go back to the branches here. When Israel shoots forth its branches, just hold that thought, and go to Matthew chapter 24. Let's connect some dots here. Matthew 24, the parable of the fig tree. Is in verse 32. I was talking to um, Terry Reynolds, and um, I don't know what year it was, but Pastor Chuck put together a movie called The Parable of the Fig Tree. And it's all about the regathering of the nation of Israel. Well, um, Terry told me there, Terry's going to be one of our speakers here at our pastor's conference in April. And uh, probably nobody closer to Chuck that I'm, that I'm aware of than, than Terry. <clears throat> anyway, he's in the process of uh, remaking this thing and um, with the equipment and the technology that we have today. So verse 32 says, now learn this parable from the fig tree when the branch is about to become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Well, we read here back in Ezekiel 36, the same sort of uh, um, verbiage when he says, um, mountains of Israel, you're gonna shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel for they are about to come. So we have the same analogy of them not only coming back but being very fruitful and multiplying. Now the Lord says when you see the fig tree come back and and blossom, it's a picture, uh, Ezekiel 36 is a picture of the people returning to the land and when they do so they're gonna be very prosperous and when the generation that's alive sees it, then verse 33, when you see these things, know that it is near at the very door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. I think the Lord stuck that in there because this is a pretty heavy prophecy. And he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but not what I just said. 
Well, what did he just say? The generation that sees Israel become a nation will see the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. All of it. Well, it's, next year it'll be 70 years. Is the generation 40 years? No, not, not according to this because that would have gone back to 88. People were writing books in 1988. 88 reasons why the Lord is coming in 1988. Didn't happen. And unfortunately, <clears throat> uh, like the scripture says, this is one place, If uh, read the next verse, but of that day and hour no one knows, it's only the, it, my father and, and heaven. That's a verse, that's a rapture verse. So what we have here is Israel coming back again and becoming a nation. Now imagine you're going into captivity and um, it's happened. And now you're going to spend the next 70 years and where's the hope? Well, the hope is Ezekiel chapter 36. Now I'm going to tell you a story. Um, When we go to Israel, we go to Masada. Uh, They've just discovered recently an older synagogue than the one that's on Masada. But the one that's on Masada was the oldest synagogue in the world up until just recently. This is a David Hawking story. He was the first tour leader to take a tourist group up to the top of Masada. Today you get on a big tram and you can fit 30 people in and you go up, like a ski resort. But they actually, if you've seen the movie Masada or know how Masada was conquered, after 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple, that was 70 AD, some of them, about 900, made it to Masada. And Masada was built by Herod. It's an incredible fortress. And if you haven't seen the movie, I really encourage you to do so. Peter O'Toole's in it, and and, um, it's really, really well done. And basically, the only way they could, the Romans could say that they've been victorious and there's no more enemies as far as Israel is concerned is they had to deal with these 900 people that were in the middle of, um, well, not the, it's the lowest place on the planet Earth. When you look down at a Masada, you look at the Dead Sea, and there's nothing but wilderness all around. 120 average in the summertime. It's so hot. And so here's 900 people. Now they're surrounded by a Roman legion. Their one job is to make sure that There's no resistance in Israel, so Masada has to be taken. So they built a ramp using Jewish slaves, and um, the ramp goes all the way up, and um, they finally were successful in breaching the walls of Masada. But it took them three years to do it. And during that period of time, um, when they were there, <clears throat> the, they tell the story that the night they all decided to take their own lives rather than be slaves to Romans. 
and um, basically said, look, our wives are going to be raped. Our children are going to be slaves for the rest of their life. And um, they, except for one woman and two children that were found alive, um, they all took their own lives rather than having the Romans have their fun with their wives and their children. They simply weren't going to stand for it. Well, it got down to 10 final guys that would be the last ones alive and how they would be responsible. They, they picked lots to decide who was going to do in his brother. And it was sort of an order. You put your name on it. And um, they actually found pieces of this pottery um, after 70 3 AD. It was there all the time. It's sort of like the Dead Sea Scrolls being discovered just up in Qumran, which is an hour just north, still on the Dead Sea. So David tells this story. They didn't, they actually walked up this ramp that the Romans had built in 73 AD, and that's how they got into Masada back then. But when David got to the top, they heard all this shouting and screaming and They didn't know what was going on. And it was coming from this ancient synagogue that exists to this day. And um, I always look forward, I always want to be able to get some time to have a Bible study in this place because this is what happened. One of the reasons that I believe that they went to their graves in peace is because when David was coming up, the reason they were yelling and shouting and were excited is that they were in the um, scripture room. Now, every synagogue has a special chamber, and in that chamber is where you keep the scrolls. And when they went in there, into the chamber, uh, they discovered underneath a stone, they picked up the stone, and they found Ezekiel chapter 36, laid out and open. And this basically was saying that they understood. They knew that they were the last of Israel. And they didn't didn't know until they read what we're reading tonight, it's going to be okay. We're going to come back. And even though this is ending tonight and it looks like the end of Israel, because Jerusalem is destroyed, they've been dispersed into all the world. They took Ezekiel chapter 36 and they put it there knowing someday it would be found. And just it wouldn't be David Hawking's luck just to be there at that moment and that time. And, you know, to have David tell us this story brings much more to life. But they knew uh, that they would come back. They knew there would be an Israel, that it would once again blossom and that Israel would be a nation again. And it's one of the more popular, usually after a trip I say, okay, what was your favorite spot? Masada always comes up. Masada and Getty, Sea of Galilee. You know, Masada is always one of them for sure. And um, so here's a personal story that goes along with that. What we're reading tonight is that's what they left behind. That's what they wanted people They were telling, in their own words, we're coming back. 
And when the Romans broke through, Peter O'Toole plays uh, um, the general for the Romans. And when they come in, it's a hollow victory for them. We know the story because Josephus records um, the conversation with the woman and the two children. They, they hid in one of the huge water cisterns. While the Romans were dying of thirst, they would take baths every day and make loud splashes because they had so much water and so much food. And when they actually conquered Masada, they found storehouses full of food. They found caverns that held 30, 40,000 gallons of water still there. And basically they were saying for the Romans, you didn't take our lives. We, 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 we could have stayed here forever, and we know that we're coming back. All right, how's that for a side story? Pretty good? <laughs> All right, let's finish our chapter. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour men and breathe your nations of children, therefore you shall devour men and more, nor breathe your nations anymore, says the Lord God. Nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations anymore, nor bear the reproach of the people anymore, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble anymore, says the Lord God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land, for their idols which they had made and uh, defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And when they came to the nations, wherever they went, uh, they profaned my holy name, when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. That's why they're called the wandering Jews. But I, have, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I don't do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. You were to be the ones that were to be different and represent me, and you failed. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, And um, the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart, uh, hearts of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and will keep my judgments and, um, and do them. So this is future. 
Um, on Sunday, again, we talked about dual covenant. The Lord always has a remnant. And um, the Lord will have a remnant even during the tribulation. Their place of security, according to Isaiah, is Petra. And um, uh, they will be there for three and a half years, supernaturally protected. And they will call on the name of the Lord. And it's then that the Lord returns and he establishes them. And they believe on him. And they're born again. Then you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you will be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from the uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees in the increase of the fields. Well, like I said on Sunday, the little nation of Israel supplies the world with one quarter of the world's fruit. And it's the size of New Jersey. And so when it says here, I will multiply your fruit, that's come to pass, that's fulfilled, even to this day, so that you'll never need again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. So it's talking about loathing themselves when they realize what they've done. Just quickly turn over to Zechariah chapter 12, referring to this in a little bit more detail. Ezekiel says, when they realize what they've done, they will loathe themselves. Well, Zechariah gives us a little bit more information. Look at verse 10 of chapter 12. It says, and I will pour out in the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced, And then they will mourn for him as one mourns for the only son and grieves for him as one grieves for his firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadar-Raman in the plains of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Naaman by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Go back to Ezekiel. And here it says that they will loathe themselves when they bear their shame. It's, uh, you'd have to be Jewish. You'd have to have the mindset that, you know, at Auschwitz, when they were put into gas chambers, on some of the signs that they said, we're doing this in Jesus' name. So it's been so, so difficult for them to open up to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when they actually realize, and here they're, they're realizing that their Messiah really was Jesus of Nazareth, it's going to be such an overwhelming emotion that they're going to, want to, they're going to mourn, but in such a great mourning, Leave me alone. I, ha- I, have to, I have to digest my history, everything, realizing that it was Jesus all along that they had pierced. He was our Messiah, and that's what we did. Well, when that comes crashing down on them, Zechariah gives us a little bit more the depth of the reality that it was really Jesus all along. All right, um, verse 23, thus says the Lord God, 
On that day that I cleanse you from your iniquity, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land will be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. And so they will say, the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And driving around Israel is an unbelievable experience. Starting on the Mediterranean, which is beautiful, uh, going up to the Galilee, which is even more beautiful, and going all the way up to the Golan Heights, and traveling down to the Dead Sea, where you, you go to places like Masada and En Gedi. And then we spend a week in Jerusalem. And um, there's no words to describe. Verse 36, Then the nations which are left around shall know that I am the Lord. I'm the one that has rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I, the Lord, will do it. And uh, the people on Masada, this is the reason they left Ezekiel 36 for the scroll, this scroll to be found. It's not over. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like flock, like a flock offered as a holy sacrifice, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to close by saying the stage is set. Israel's back in the land. They're ready. It looks like there's places like Sakni that's unbelievably beautiful, an oasis out in the middle of the wilderness. So part of this, we're watching it unfold. Israel is, um, somebody wants to see a miracle? Look at Israel. There is a miracle. Because what the Lord has done is brought back, and that's where we'll be next time, 37. Chapter 37 is, um, again, two ways of saying what we just read in chapter 36 that even though their bones were dead, the Lord says they're going to come back to life. And I'll put my spirit on you. We're living right now, we're living between chapter 37 and chapter 38. 35, 36, and 37 is fulfilled. You can just check it off. And yet it talks about even going into the future, into the millennium. What hasn't happened yet, but the stage is set for, is Ezekiel 38 and 39. And that's, um, I'm looking forward to to, um, teaching on this because I believe uh, the stage is set for this to happen um, right now. I sort of laugh at myself, people telling me about their retirement plan. And um, I was talking to one gentleman today about when he's going to retire, and he told me when he's going to, I just sort of, chuckled a little bit because I thought we're so out of here before that happens as quickly as things are happening right now. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, even more so as you see the day approaching. Simple question, do you see the day approaching? And we, we nod our heads yes. You know, you, know, you know why we nod our heads yes? Because we're studying the book of Ezekiel and we're watching it unfold right before our eyes. So we're exhorted, as um, the Bible also predicts, a falling away. We see that happening. But then an exhortation for you and I, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, especially as we see the day approaching. Amen?
Amen. Let's say we'll close the prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight as we've gone through these chapters that have been fulfilled in our lifetime. And Lord, we, wanna, we want to be able to prioritize seeking first your kingdom. Lord, help us. We need help in these days when there's so many things that demand our time and attention. But help us keep the main thing the main thing, and that is feeding the flock. And as the flock is fed, that we be involved with the work of ministry that we're a Christian first and then whatever our profession is after that is always in second place. And if that's not the case here tonight, Lord, I pray that you would convict us and just bring us back to that place where you're number one. And we thank you for your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.